Hey yo, and welcome to the College Student Success Podcast, podcast where college students and faculty come together to talk about mental health, wellness, mentorship, and entrepreneurship. Together, we set and achieve goals for ourselves to get us where we want to be. I'm your host, Derek Malinzak, and this is episode 100 of the podcast. And I have been waiting a long time to say that. (laughs) I'm not usually one to celebrate round numbers because to me it's just another number in a lot of ways. Um, But I don't know. It feels like an accomplishment to get to 100. Uh, I didn't think I would do it. Uh, Well, maybe I didn't think I could do it. I just didn't know if I would uh, when I started. So welcome, everybody. Uh, I had originally planned to do something special in terms of looking back uh, on the podcast over the years for episode number 100, Um, but plans changed, (laughs) as they often do. So uh, I ended up uh, doing this interview last night that I just uh, really enjoyed and uh, I'm really happy with how it came out, uh, mainly because it touches on everything that we focus on here. Uh, the four pillars of the College Student Success Podcast, it focuses a lot on mental health and recovery. It focuses on wellness strategies and how to cope. It focuses a lot on mentorship, which you'll hear a great deal about in the second half of the episode. And it also features entrepreneurship as well with our guest, or one of our guests that we have on today, talking about her uh, business our entrepreneurial side hustle, as we say. So in a sense, this episode is sort of a culmination of many years of college student success, um, you know, refining what the podcast is all about and tr- featuring, I think, um, a lot of what I try and, and do. You know, we, we try and feature a lot of college students or, or college grads that have been in recovery, were in uh, experiencing difficult times during college, and managed to figure out ways to uh, cope with the symptoms, and then not only that, but learn skills and learn strategies and find their way and recover. And so we've had a number of people on tell their recovery stories, and today will be no different. And I've also had a number of sort of experts, quote unquote, uh, you know, people that have been in the field for a long period of time talking about things that they are passionate about when it comes to college students. So I have Brittany Stone back, who we had on a few episodes ago uh, to help uh, talk about the uh, peer mentoring uh, initiative that she and I are working on that I thought kind of dovetailed well with uh, Emily, who is the other person that uh, is on this interview, uh, talks about her recovery story first, and then we get into uh, the discussion about life coaching and, and mentorship, and then we get into uh, what Brittany and I are working on. So a lot of elements here in tonight's episode. Uh, I want to don't want to delay it anymore, so let's get right into it. Welcome, Emily and Brittany. Okay, we are here today. I have a very special interview, um, kind of a first in a few ways. Uh, So I'm here with Emily Grossman uh, and uh, Brittany Stone, who you guys may remember from a podcast a few episodes ago. We were talking about um, academic uh, accommodations and whatnot. So Brittany, welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. And welcome, Emily. How are you? Thank you, Derek. I'm very happy to be here. And you are legit like here in my house tonight, which is uh, pretty cool. Um, So this is the first time I've ever done an in-person interview. So that's pretty cool. Yes. Um, So thank you both for being here uh, on a late Thursday night after we've all been working. Uh, It shows your dedication to college students and helping people with uh, mental health issues succeed. So that's what we'll be talking about tonight. Uh, and this is kind of going to be an awesome episode because it's going to have a little bit of uh, the two of the main things that I like to do when we have guests on. So as you guys know who've listened for a while, people, uh, a lot of people that come on the show will tell their recovery stories, You know, people that have that lived experience, to talk about what it was like for them if they struggled in college, what it was like. Um, 
and where they've come and what they've learned. And we will have a little bit of that tonight from Emily. And then we will also get into a project that Brittany and I are working on that Emily has some some uh, experience working on uh, in as well. Uh, the idea of peer mentorship. So we will get into that in a little while as well. So first, though, let's let's hear a story. So Emily, uh, you are. We just found out we're the same age. Yeah. Um, so I can reference at least some things that were going on historically at the times <laughs> that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and I was actually in college in the same place as you. Um, just over the river. So why don't you start out telling them a little bit about, you know, um, what it was like for you, I guess, leading up to, you know, uh, when things started to go downhill from a mental health standpoint. Sure, sure. So um, I was, I actually started school at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And just before that, in my senior year of college, I started to have my first suicidal thoughts. I was very active in college, in high school rather, and very um, engaged in high school on a superficial level. I, I mean, I was involved with clubs and activities and doing well academically, and it looked good on paper, but underneath it all, I was a really great actress, and underneath it all, I was really struggling um, with um, anxiety and depression, which led to suicidal thoughts. But I told no one, and off I went to college. And during my first semester at college at Emory, which is in Atlanta, Georgia, I started to, after the first two months, have panic attacks that were very severe. And I didn't know what it was. I mean, this was way before Demi Lovato was coming out and saying that she experienced bipolar disorder and other celebrities were talking about it. So I really didn't know what was going on. And I was very, very embarrassed. And um, I felt a lot of shame and stigma. And ultimately, that led to a suicide attempt that I made while I was in my undergrad. And then um, at that point, my mom came and decided that I should really go home for treatment, which I was so, I felt like a real, like I was failing because I had messed up my opportunity to be a good student and I felt like I had really messed up. So I got home, I was hospitalized for the first time and you know, being an 18-year-old on an adult unit where people's illnesses had really seriously progressed was very, very scary. And I was seeing all kinds of things that I'd never seen before, like restraints and people being in seclusion and things that were very scary for me. And it was very traumatic. And so what, what do you think started it all? I mean, you said you were an, you kind of acted through through high school um and then it did it just kind of get magnified in college i think? think if i had to say what started it all it was that i put a lot of pressure on myself it wasn't coming from anywhere else my parents were very loving and supportive but i just always had this perfectionist ten perfectionist tendency mm. and i pushed myself really hard and that coupled with the fact that I learned later I had a family history of bipolar disorder, um, going back to my grandfather's generation, um, I think, and maybe even beyond that, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But um, I think those things coupled together were a perfect storm for this. Yeah. So, yeah, the genetics and then exactly what you said, the perfect storm came along the the perfectionist tendencies and then the stress of college just kind of yes. set it off. Yes. Yeah. And going away to school, I felt like I had to be the perfect adult and that's why I left because I love my family but I wanted to prove that I was ready to handle the world and I just put so much stress on myself that way. Yeah. What was it like maybe you remember it maybe you don't but maybe the, the first time you remember hearing or remembering that you had bipolar disorder? Yeah, so um, they diagnosed me with bipolar disorder not right away. At first they thought it was just anxiety and depression. 
But I was packed to go back down to Emory again because I wanted to return. And that's when I had my first manic episode. And again, didn't know what it was until I got to the doctor and told the doctor my symptoms. And when he said bipolar, I just thought, first of all, I I didn't quite understand what it was, but I also thought that it was just the worst possible label that you could have. I, I felt like I would have rather they told me that I had a heart disease or something else, you know, rather than having bipolar disorder. Yeah, I think even amongst mental health diagnoses, you know, people can kind of, I don't know, it, it's gotten a lot better. I'd say less stigmatizing to have depression yes. you know, or anxiety. You know, yes. people can understand those <clears throat> and be like, okay, I know somebody that's had that or I feel, I felt that way before. But when you say bipolar disorder yeah. or schizophrenia, yes. you know, that's when we're talking like, oh no, that's, that's a crazy person, you know? Yes. Um, so I can empathize with that because it's it does sound scary also and you know especially if you don't know people that have that so Absolutely. so what what happened next I mean you said you were getting ready to go back to Atlanta yeah so I ended up not going back to Atlanta um, they got me on a mood stabilizer and a couple other medications to help me manage and I applied to Rutgers because it became clear that I needed to be home by my doctors. And that started, I started Rutgers and was in school for two years, really fairly stable. I mean, meaning that I was in school, I was going to class, I was getting good grades, but I was also trying to be a quote unquote normal college student, which meant that I was trying, in my mind, that meant that I would go out and be with my friends and drink and do all the things that quote unquote normal college students do. And Um, I joined a sorority, I got very involved in school, and then I had a breakthrough with my medication, meaning that I broke through it and it wasn't working anymore. And that was two years into my experience. So at that point, I started to have, again, suicidal thoughts. Um, I was in a relationship that was um, pretty damaging and destructive and I um, started to experience psychosis um, which for those of you who don't know is really having delusional thinking seeing and hearing things that aren't there and that part of the journey was particularly difficult Um, I was writing papers and trying to graduate while I was also in this delusional state so this is Rutgers now yeah. You're living at home? No, I was living on campus. Okay. One of the things is that my parents really wanted to make sure I graduated. And we found that when I went home, I would really regress. So my parents wouldn't let me come home at some point. And I had to stay up at school, even during breaks, um, because it was just they were afraid I wouldn't stay in school and graduate. What was that like for you? Did you? Was that welcome? Or I mean, I can imagine that, you know, on one hand, feeling like terrible. Yeah, like, I, can't I go really, home. yeah, I really felt like, in some ways, very abandoned. Yeah. And I think that was part of why I got into a very destructive romantic relationship because um, I just felt abandoned, and mm-hmm. it made me vulnerable. Yeah, and that person was there. And, yes. Yeah. Exactly. All right, so things are bad. Yeah, so things were bad. Um, I was in and out of the hospital 12 times. Um, Really, you know, getting progressively worse. And one of the things I really say is that the hospital was, I was in the hospital, but the hospital was getting inside of me, meaning that I was becoming someone who was um, institutionalized in my thinking. I was a quote unquote mental patient. And I hate that saying completely, but that's how I felt in my heart. Like I really felt like I was, um, losing my grip on how to function in the world. And that's a, that's something that's pretty common. I think for people that are in and out of the hospital as much as I was, um, but I was no longer able, I felt very separate from my friends who were not experiencing that. 
Yeah. Yeah, I can I can understand not having had that experience, but having worked with a lot of older adults with multiple hospitalizations. Yes. What that a little bit about what that must be like yeah. from what they've talked about. Yeah. All right. So what turned what started to turn it around? Well, before I it turned around in it my last worse. yeah, in <sighs> my last hospital so I did graduate college, mm-hmm. but I was not functioning in the community at all. Um, really not taking care of myself, really not getting out of bed. And in the last hospitalization that I had, they actually gave me an interview for the state hospital. And I remember that very well. Um, I remember that I had been in the system long enough to know what to say to try to convince them that I didn't belong there. And so it was the day of the interview. I like blew out my hair. I put on my makeup and I just acted and I pretended that I was way more together than I actually was. And I really am so grateful I did that because the state hospitalization was not necessarily with an end date in mind. It was Mm -hmm. just that was where I was going to go, you know, and I just saw that I had, I felt like I had the potential to help people. And I, and that came from a message from my mom that happened years before where she said, one day, Emily, you're going to help so many people because of this struggle. And I just had engraved that in my heart. And I knew if I went to the state hospital, there was no way I would come out a whole person if I ever came out, you know. So um, that was kind of the start of a rock bottom. And from there, I um, was living in supported at, in supported housing, and in supported housing was another rock bottom because I was living with people that were twice or three times my age, and they all had schizophrenia, and we had no, and I had a lot of friends that had gotten good jobs out of college, moved into apartments, and I wanted that life. I wanted to have a quote unquote normal life. And so I, um, that was where the turning point started to happen. And so talk about that. Like, what were some of the, the coping strategies I'm interested to in knowing? Like, yeah. some of the things that, first started to to help you in your recovery journey well a few years before i had taken dbt or dialectical behavior therapy and i learned so many important and great skills the problem was that i hadn't made the decision to use them yet and it wasn't until i hit that kind of a bottom that i realized that if i didn't try to use these skills my life was going nowhere you know, so they were, so DBT, I call it a class to manage intense emotions and deal with difficult people. That's the way I conceptualize it because all the skills are around interpersonal skills and also managing your emotions when they're off the charts. So um, I used a lot of those strategies, everything from You know, when you're feeling suicidal, how to use distress tolerance skills, like whether it's breathing or DBT gives you like a whole list of different things to try. And I like went down the list sometimes to the very bottom and there were like 20 different things to try. And some days I had to try them all, but I just fought really, really hard. Um, And in addition, I... um, decided that they they were trying to get me on social security disability and I made a choice in my mind that I was not going to let that happen that I really wanted to work and so I interviewed for a job again acting because I didn't know the first thing about working really except for the jobs I had in high school and parts of college but I always lost the ones in college because I was sick and struggling um so anyway I, I, um, I put on a suit, I went for my first interview, and I got the job, it was working for a tutoring center, and I did it for nine months, and then my ability to work was really not where it needed to be, so I lost that job, partially, mostly because 
I was falling asleep on the job because my medications, because of side effects with my mm. medication and such. So then I tried to get another job, lost that job after nine months too. And at that point I said, hmm, if I'm going to do this work thing, I really need to be truly happy doing it. I need to be doing something where I'm truly happy. And from there, I applied to grad school because I realized what made me truly happy was being an educator. And I applied to graduate school and somehow was accepted. Um, and I was terrified <laughs> to go, but I felt like I had no other choice. So I went and I went to, I was accepted into Columbia University into Teachers College. And I started with that. And right when I got in, I found a spiritual practice that made sense to me, which involved a lot of meditation. And the meditation started to transform something for me. It became my main coping strategy. And between that and the fact that I was around a lot of people that were incredibly motivated and passionate about what the same things I was motivated and passionate about, and all of a sudden now I had a dream and a goal um, to work towards, that's when my recovery really started to take off. Yeah, and I... And- I appreciate that's that part of the story so much because it's, you know, everybody's recovery is so different, but that is always like common, you know, yeah. that feeling. I could see a change in your face. Like yeah. this is different because I can never see the person that I'm interviewing. So yeah. this is kind of cool. Um, but you could see the change because, you know, that, that it still sparks something in you thinking back to that time. Absolutely. It was really a magical time in my life, yeah. you know. And so got out of school, became a teacher. And then when I was teaching, I had so many students start to come up to me with their own mental health struggles. And I really, really, really wanted to help them. But as a teacher, you're not in a position to really help students. You're not supposed to because you're not, quote unquote, trained to. Although I had all this lived experience, so I knew what they were going through. And so I looked into social work school, but I had this really big loan from grad school the first time. And I did some more research and I found out that they were training people who had experience with mental illness, who were in recovery to help other people recover. And it was called being a peer provider. And so I took the training and I loved it. I just loved it and got into that work worked for a number of years as a peer provider and loved it so much and became so passionate about this idea that people with mental illness can recover no matter how low they've gotten that I wanted to help other mental health professionals to understand that. And that's how I got into training. And in the process, I also started my own peer life coaching practice. And we can maybe talk a little bit about that definitely going to talk about that but yes so okay so it's amazing how the story just snowballs you know from when but you know i i do want to ask you about a couple of things so please what so you i like how you talk about you know the things that you learned from dbt as being the the early steps that and things that you learned that helped in your recovery and then the meditation and, and stuff that helped you later in your recovery. So I'm interested in if that's still going on for you. But also, um, in terms of, I, I do want to just highlight, because I did bring this up in another interview, when you say like a peer provider, mm-hmm. maybe we could just explain what that is a little bit more. Because I want people to know, like when, when we say peer in our world, uh, we don't just mean like, you know, we're peers because we work together, that it means something a little bit different. So what what did a peer provider training, what was it like and what did you learn about in in that aspect? Right, so a peer is a person with lived experience who helps other people to recover. But the key Mm -hmm. is I can't just have lived experience and decide that I'm gonna help people recover. I also have to be willing to disclose about it on the job to clients. And so um, 
part of the training is to teach you how to share your story in a way that's actually helpful to people. So that's a big part of what we learned. We also did a lot of role playing around basic helping strategies. Um, we learned a lot about um, what the medications were that the doctors would be talking about. Um, we learned about addiction. We learned about um, benefits and entitlements. So it was a very um, comprehensive training program. Yeah, I think that that's that's important to know is like not just anybody that has a mental illness is necessarily equipped to help others. Right. I imagine part of it is uh, you have to have some perspective and, and some some recovery time yes. in yes. order to be in a position to really lend yourself. I you know I think others. so and it's funny I was doing a talk the other night where I was sharing my journey and that was one of the questions they said they asked it was a group of social work students and they said well how do you know when you've had enough recovery that you can be a peer and it was a really good question and I don't know that I have a concrete answer to that but I do know that you have to be far enough down the road in your own journey that that you have insight into what works and what doesn't to keep you in a good place, you know, because doing the work can be stressful as well. And so if you don't have good coping strategies already, it's really hard to do the work. And also it's hard to share how you recovered if you're not recovered yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to ask you, yeah, what are you doing these days for recovery strategies is it the same and then if Brittany, if you have any questions um you can uh, ask emily anything i may have missed that you found interesting about her story so what are you doing these days sure so um you know it's interesting i still i'm a regular meditator still i i meditate in the morning and the evening and um, the type of meditation I practice involves saying a chant over and over again. I've tried all different kinds of meditation, and I find that the chanting for me really um, gives me something to focus on, and it's it's been really good for me personally. Um, in addition to that, I... Um, one of the things I didn't mention is that all along I kind of had an underlying eating disorder and I've been in a 12-step program for um, food addiction as well. Um, and that, that some of the tools that I've learned there have also helped me to build myself spiritually. Um, so that's a very big part of my journey. It's a lot of spiritual and inner work. Um, I also love spending time with my family and friends. Um, I have I have a very close relationship with my father and my mom as well, but my dad and I talk every day. And he's really, um, he's a very validating person. And so he's really a rock for me. Uh, I love dancing. I take a Zumba class. <laughs> um, and that's fun. I have friends that I exercise with as well. And that's great. Um, and then being really structured for me around life in general, like I go to bed at the same time every night, I wake up at the same time every morning, pretty much. And I have a routine, you know, and that is so important to my wellness. So, um, and the new thing I'm learning to do is not let my emotions build up because, when resentment, for example, builds up, which I found that after I stopped eating about resentments, I found that I had a lot of them. Um, when I learned how to manage that differently, things started to transform even more. And I felt more and more unblocked and happier in my life. That, yeah, that I can relate to a lot of those strategies. I'm I talk about this on podcasts all the time, my obsession with yoga lately, but it's been, it's been my meditation, you know, yeah. it's like the thing that is like a lot has clicked into place since I found that to, and I wasn't necessarily struggling. Right. When I found it, I was like, wow, maybe I was struggling a little more than I thought. Right. 
Right. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you know you 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 going into the depths of that and 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 also sharing that that info about um, your eating disorder as well. I just had somebody on um, my last interview actually, or one of my last ones was somebody uh, who told their their recovery story and it was involving uh, an eating disorder. So it's been a topic uh, this semester mm. in particular. What about you, Brittany? Any questions for Emily? I'm sitting here, you know, in rapt attention. Um, Emily, thank you so much for being on and sharing your story and walking us through the journey and your experiences. Um, I found it really interesting to hear the different things that worked for you at different points and how it really is about this self-learning and developing these insights about what works for you individually. Yeah. Um, and what works for you at different points in your in your journey. Um, one of the things that I was wondering about, um, going back to your experience in college, um, were there certain campus resources that were available um, that you were able to utilize that were supportive or that helped you um, get to graduation? Yeah, you know, that's a wonderful question. I'm so glad you asked, Brittany. So um, one of the things um, was that we had a wonderful Dean of Disabilities at the time, um, who I understand is still there. His name is uh, Clarence Shive mm -hmm. at Rutgers. And um, he really worked with me when I was struggling to maintain my status in a class. For example, like I would take a I'd start the semester and then I'd be hospitalized and I wouldn't know what to say to my teachers and I'd be behind in my schoolwork and he would help me to to navigate all of that so that I didn't fail classes because of that. You know, so having really good communication with him was one of the reasons that I was able to really graduate. Um, another very important part part of my journey at school was that I always maintain my connections in the different activities I was involved in. Um, for example, being in a sorority, while um, it was, you know, so notoriously you think of sororities and fraternities and you think of a lot of drinking. And there was that, but there was also a lot of connection and having a support system within my sorority of people that understood what I was going through really was a net that caught me during a really tough time, you know? So that was really positive. And I was also involved in um, new student orientation at Rutgers. And um, I was one of the people that helped to run new student orientation. Um, and having that group and those peers around um, really helped too. I think what really, really helped me maintain connections was that I was honest about what I was going through with people. I mean, I just basically told people what was happening so that I didn't have to lie about not showing up places and different things like that. And there were some people that stayed around and other people that couldn't handle it and didn't want to be a part of my life. And that was a normal part of the process that I learned to accept, you know, Oh, that's so interesting. So you had you had these more formalized resources and you found somebody that was supportive through disability services. And then you also had these really great interpersonal connections and people that were able to accept all of you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I was very blessed to have a lot of beautiful people in my life at that time that really accepted me for who I was. And I think a big part of that was not being afraid to be who I really was and be honest about it. Yeah, that must have felt a little scary or been a big risk initially. Yeah, I mean, it was. You know, my parents were very honest with their friends about what I, what I was going through with my permission. Mm -hmm. And so it was a really good model for me because when I saw that their friends stuck by them, Mm -hmm. I felt like, oh, I can try this with my friends, too, and see what happens. And I just, I learned to not take it as rejection when people walked away. I learned to just take it as, well, you know, there's that saying, when it's dark outside, you can see the stars. Mm -hmm. And that's how I felt about friends. When it was really dark in my life, I could see the stars in my life who were my friends, you know. 
Yeah, that was that's a really um, you know important you know perspective to take. I think in terms of like there's still light out there. Yes, you know even when it is feeling like really really dark. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'd like to ask you, we, we touched upon it earlier, your, your side hustle there. <laughs> um, so your life coaching or, or what, what exactly do you do and, and how did that come about? Yeah, so I love the pure work so much that at some point I thought to myself, why can't I just do this on the side as well? And... Um, especially when I got into training and I had to make a choice between do I want to continue with the peer work or do I want to get a full-time job as a trainer? And I really wanted to take the recovery stuff to the next level as a trainer, but I knew that peer work would really inform the training I was doing. So I decided to do the peer work on the side and then do the training full-time. So I call myself a peer life coach. I call myself that because I feel like the general population knows what a life coach is. And so I feel like and I feel like a lot of the work I do is akin to what a life coach does, but it's a little bit different because I work with people that have mental illness, especially um, transition age youth is what we call them now, you know, people in college or just going into college or just coming out of college. And I basically coach them on how to build a life that they're happy with, you know, in spite of their mental health struggles, but also because of them. Because I really feel that this illness or these illnesses, if we even call it an illness, you know, I really feel like they can help us to become our best selves too when we overcome them. Yeah, so what does it look like? Um, So you work with somebody... Is it kind of like, I think of like how a mentor would work with a protege and and maybe that we could talk a little bit about if that's similar, but is it more driven by the person that you're working with in terms of like what they want to work on or or do you set a curriculum? How does that work? So yeah, I really like work with the person meeting them where they're at. There's not a a pre-prescribed curriculum because I believe everyone's recovery takes a little bit of a different turn depending upon who the person is and what's authentic to them. So all of the goals come from the individual and all of the strategies about how to manage the, the symptoms that they're having come from the individual. I just more help them to visualize the steps that it's going to take to get there. Yeah. And so that kind of leads us into so, sort of what something Brittany and I are, are working on presently and, and how this whole uh, meeting with the three of us uh, came about. Um, Brittany, if you had any questions for Emily about her her business that you wanted to ask, you can you know totally take it that way. Or if you wanted to, you can uh, just kind of pick up from that in terms of what we uh, what we've been working on. I do have one question about um, the peer life coaching, Emily. Would you uh, what percentage of people that you are working with? would you say come in to focus on educational or employment goals? Just about all of them. In fact, all of them. (laughs) Yes, um, that's pretty much what we're working on. I mean, some of them also have side goals as well, like such as I want to have a healthy romantic relationship, things like that. But but because I think of the age of the people that I mostly specialize in working with, mm-hmm. a lot of them want to figure out their career life and their educational goals, etc. Um, so it's been wonderful being able to take people who are either coming into college or going right out of college and watch them blossom into these amazing adults, you know? Yeah, I think that's so interesting. You know, and it just really speaks to... I mean, that's what young adults do. They're interested in work. They're interested in school. Uh, You know, and and unfortunately, sometimes some of the other traditional providers aren't really able to um, 
to really assist them in the the best way possible to get them. Yeah. And I, I, I think that the reason I've been able to have success with people is because when someone tells me their goal, I picture them in the as if the goal has already happened. Like, for example, I, I, wor- I was working with a young man who wanted to become a nurse, and he described what it was going to be like when he was a nurse, and I started to picture him in those scrubs way before he ever started wearing them. And now he's a full-time nurse, you know? And it's just those kind of things. I visualize that for the person ahead of time. Yeah, you really hold that sense of hope and you truly believe in recovery. Yes. Yeah. And so I think for some students, you know, hearing it from an authority figure, right? You know, oh, you should do this with your career. You know, maybe you should look into this. Maybe it's just that age, but people a lot of times aren't ready to hear it or just aren't taking a person's advice it's the same type of credibility that they might lend to somebody that's closer in age to them, you know, or perhaps typically like maybe a little bit older even. I had a mentor in college. It, it was nothing official. It was very informal. It was like, you know, this guy I met and you know, I was a sophomore and he was a senior and he was like the big brother that I never had, you know, um, in terms of like helping me figure out like what I really liked and you know he was one of the people that was you know I was telling you that I you know lived in the house with me and you know was in the mental health field and you know helped me get my first job in the field and you know I think back to that and it, it wasn't you know I didn't realize that I was looking for that in college or that I needed that but it just came about and it wasn't things that an, an older authority figure could could tell me and so like that's i think it's sort of i think the commonality between what what we're talking about in terms of like a peer having the lived experience is is really important for some people to Mm -hmm. to be able to relate and say all right you went through what i went through so i'm going you have some credibility and I've, i've experienced that in terms of talking with people with alcohol addiction i could i could relate others can't uh and then what the other thing in terms of being a peer is somebody close in age, you know, yeah. that you can take their advice with a little bit more. Um, they just feel a little bit more compelled, I guess, to listen to what the person has to say because, you know, they can relate a little bit better. So I think that's a lot of what Brittany and I have, have been interested in, in terms of like, there's a lot of professional supports out there probably not enough of them (laughs) on college campuses but we have disability services we have counseling services and we have a lot of other you know student-led and otherwise types of groups but we're interested in we're interested in this mentorship and in lending uh, or starting some kind of uh, program not in similar in some ways i think coaching and mentoring do have a lot of overlap, but Brittany, maybe you could talk a little bit about how this started and, and sort of where we where we're going towards it. That would be great. Yeah, so um, this project is something that I am super excited about, and it's um, uh, come about over the course of of what about two years now yeah. um, since we decided that we wanted to partner together and and do something to support college students with mental health conditions. So initially we were thinking about how we could work within disability services and um, provide skills, resources, knowledge for for this group of students to be able to work better with disability services and collaborate better with professors. And um, we had written a grant to start to study that and to look at what these critical items would be. Um, We were fortunate enough last summer to get to present at the HEAD conference, which is the Association of Higher Education and Disability, where it's a professional organization for disability service providers. And in going to that conference, 
meeting people, hearing what was going on, um, doing a little bit more research, more reading, uh, it started to to become clear that there was this need for peer supports on campus. Um, that interpersonal connection that Emily spoke about is so important for so many college students. And, and that's something really unique to that peer mentor relationship that is missing from other traditional supports. Um, you know, additionally, we know that students with mental health conditions may not connect to traditional supports like disability services and college counseling centers historically have very long wait lists. And, um, you know, there's such a high demand that sometimes students aren't able to really get everything that they need. And some students really do just need that, you know, that relationship, that ability to sit down with somebody and talk about what it's like to be on campus and um, experience things that typical college students experience, things that um, they might not be able to, to talk about with an adult or another type of service provider. So back in January, Derek and I were able to um, connect with a group of um, Redgers staff um, focused around student services. So we have student health, we have counseling, we have disability services. And we were able to go in and, and talk about bringing peer wellness um, and peer mentoring to Rutgers. So since then, um, we've been thinking about how to best get these programs up and running, what type of um, training peers would need, how to structure this program. Um, you know, and, and Emily is one of the people who has been so connected with providing peer services. So we've, we've pulled her in, um, you know, and we're starting to seek out who best to connect with to develop this program further. And so, yeah, we are, that's kind of where we're at at this point. We're sort of looking for the best type of, um, program that's going to work and we've gone back and forth so we talk about this idea of a peer being somebody with lived experience and also a peer being somebody close in age and and that's one thing that you know we've sort of gone back and forth on because we do value you know we do see the value of people with uh you know some experience with a psychiatric condition being able to lend that experience but not everybody needs it and there certainly is a, a, a seems to be a desire for people even that don't have that aren't in recovery to want to mentor other students. What do you think about that, Emily? Do you have anything? I mean, I think you would probably say, you know, certainly the lived experience is valuable. But, you know, what do you think about a program in terms of like it be, having room for both types of peers? Mm. You know, as you were talking, Derek, I was thinking to myself that the I that each individual may need something a little different. So it's important to have a wide variety of different options for people. I think that a home run in some ways would be someone who's a peer in age who also has lived experience, but maybe that's just what would be my home run in terms of what I would need if I were a student. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that the other thing that comes up for people sometimes is that when they're newly diagnosed, it's hard for them to accept their diagnosis. And so working with someone that doesn't necessarily, that isn't necessarily um, a peer with a mental health diagnosis could be very good in that case, you know? So I, I think it would vary. And I think giving the people that are coming in to work with the peers a choice mm -hmm. could be a very positive approach as well. I think so too. You know, I think that for some, it really wouldn't matter. And for some, it would matter a great deal. Yeah. And so as our, you know, practice of psych rehab has taught us, you know, everybody, you know, does kind of respond differently and, and take a different amount of time. So being mindful of the nonlinear nature, you know, everything should be as individualized as possible. But I do think it's good, it would be good to have 
yeah, I, I, something I haven't thought about is that selection process. Like, I wonder how it would look. And Brittany, if you have any ideas, we haven't really talked about this. Like, how would people get matched? You know, what are the what do you think are the most important things that people should have in common that would facilitate a good mentoring kind of relationship? Any ideas on that? Oh, you know, um, right off the bat, the first thing that um, comes up for me is asking about um, if there is a gender preference, um, you know, or um, even a cultural preference, the language preference. Um, at Rutgers, we have students um, from all over our country and, and from several other countries I would also kind of be interested to see in terms of the mentors, um, not just who has personal lived experience and who doesn't, but for those who don't, do they have um, family members or do they know other people with mental health conditions? And, um, you know, so maybe not their own experience, but, but also their connection to somebody with a mental health condition. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the other things I was thinking about is, could there be some kind of an assessment where you figure out where a person is with their recovery journey? Are they just newly diagnosed and not in an acceptant phase of it? Are they at a place where they've come to a little more acceptance? Where are they in terms of their... um, of where they are in their own personal recovery. Mm -hmm. And I think that that may be a good way of matching people as well. I know that one of the things I've learned in, in some of the training I've done on transition age youth is that when they are newly diagnosed, very often they don't want to talk about recovery yet because they're Mm -hmm. like, what am I supposed to recover from? You know, I I don't have anything to recover from. So in that case, it wouldn't be effective for someone who has been down the road and considers themselves in recovery to say, hi, look at me, I'm recovered and you can recover too. Mm -hmm. So I think a matching based on something like that would be very important as well. Yeah, I agree. Like some people, that's not going to be their primary motivation in seeking mentorship. It might just be yeah, I got this thing going on, but I'll take care of that on my own time. Like, I really need help, like, dealing with this professor that's giving me a hard time and how am I going to talk to them or, you know, more academic coaching. Yeah. And we really, I know Brittany and I have talked about this a lot, like, we really think that we would want to prepare mentors to be able to do that, you know, a wide range. Like, some of it will be Mm -hmm. supportive type of, you know, empathizing and being able to to be good listeners and some of it will be more like what you were saying about i think a little bit in terms of your life coaching uh in helping somebody figure out what is important to them Mm -hmm. and then giving them the steps or helping them plan out like this is how you're going to get that Mm -hmm. yeah that's a great point you know when i worked in supported education and was working with college students there were a number of students who came in and, um, you know, just they kind of said, like, I don't feel like I have the diagnosis that people are telling me I have, um, but I'm having trouble with these things. And that's what I, I need your help with. And for us, it didn't matter in supported ed. I didn't care what the diagnosis was. It was really about, well, how are you functioning and what's getting in your way? And let's figure those things out. And a lot of the young people really responded to that. They didn't want um, to have that label or to label themselves um, as having a specific diagnosis. So I I do think that being able to offer kind of a a menu of services and maybe frame it as if you're having trouble with these things, this service can be of, of assistance. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that staying away from the label thing is is, is going to be a big a big driver to success. Yeah. yeah. Especially because those labels change. I mean, recently I went to a 
for an intake for a mental health provider and they didn't diagnose me as bipolar anymore because I haven't had those symptoms in years, you know? So What was that like? Oh my goodness. It felt it felt it you know, it was interesting. On the one hand, I was really grateful that I could that they could say that about me. But on the other hand, it's part of who I am, you know? It's been part of my identity. So there was also a little bit of a loss loss yeah funny to think of it that way but yeah I can, I can understand when you do when i've thought about recovery enough to know that like you do kind of like internalize the identity of yeah. having something and when it if it, i can't imagine like if somebody would be like actually you really didn't have alcoholism you, had this. <laughs> you know that's kind of a little different but um yeah yeah all right. Well, this has been freaking awesome. Um, I really appreciate the both of you coming uh, together with me and, and being able to deliver this. I think both students that are, you know, kind of feeling a bit lost might now see a little bit more uh, the value of a mentor. Students that are feeling that have that neat natural leadership tendencies that that see like, you know, I could see myself being a role model for somebody, especially if they do potentially have a little bit of recovery under their belt, might get something out of this. And then the faculty out there that might be listening might be thinking about this and being like, you know, our school needs a peer mentoring program. Or if your school has it, like, I'd like to find out more about that because I see students that struggle all the time and you know, if you work in a big school, there's a good chance those students have no idea that the peer mentoring program even exists. Um, so any any closing thoughts on, you know, um, advice for any of those people in terms of like, yeah, this is this episode has sparked my interest either as somebody that wants a mentor, that wants to be a mentor or an invested faculty member. Um, what what would you say to any and all of those people? Um, either one of you, you know, want to start Emily? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think I would say that, um, that never to lose hope, never to lose hope. If you're a person who is struggling, never to lose hope and give up on people who are struggling, that recovery is out there. And regardless of how low a person gets in their in their life and in their journey, they can always turn it around. And having hope is what got me through the toughest days. So I just hope that everyone holds on to that. It's hard to follow. <laughs> um yeah, again, the hope is so important. Open communication is also something that's very important, both um, I think for faculty, people who would want to be mentors, people who like a mentor, being able to reach out, communicate, seek out resources, explore your campus website, um, talk to people even informally, um, but see what's out there in your community or even online and just you know, keep those lines of communication open. Yeah. And I, I will just end, I think with just this thought of like, you know, what I was saying before about finding yoga, like don't stop looking for things that are going to help you, you know, you're going to find tools that are going to work and you're going to be like, thank God I found this, or I can't believe I lived with this long without this. And then you're going to try a bunch of things that aren't going to work, but I, there's gonna there's always things out there that can help and and as we talked about like sometimes people's needs in terms of things that they can use to cope or feel mm-hmm. supported by change over time and we need to be adapting as well with our own recovery to be constantly looking for those tools or just being open to the fact that other things out there might be helpful uh, aids and tools and supports and resources to us in our in our lives so Thank you, ladies. Appreciate you having you. Thank you. It was an honor to be here. This was great. All right. Any questions, please reach out um, so I can be uh, reached out at College Student Success Podcast at Gmail. 
Um, I will put Emily's website in the show notes if you're cool with that. Of course. Um, so if anyone is interested in learning more about what Emily does or reaching out, I'm sure there's contact me logo. And um, also, Brittany, I'll throw your email out there as well um, if you'd like. And we are totally interested in um, peer mentoring that you guys might be involved with out there in the listening mm-hmm. audience. Uh, and from those those different perspectives, you know, if you are a faculty member involved with a peer mentoring program, we'd love to hear what you're doing. Um, students that are mentors uh, or students that are getting mentorship. I mean, I would I would die to have you come on the show and, and talk about the experience because, or mm-hmm. even if you're not ready for that, off air with just Brittany and I. I mean, we are 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 really at the point where we're trying to learn as much as we can. Uh, about uh, what what are the essential aspects of a good peer mentorship program. So it's a call to arms and uh, be a big help to us. So, all right. Thank you, guys. Have a good one, and we will uh, be back at you next week. Take care. All right. We are back. And... Uh, I think you could tell in that interview how excited uh, you know I was to talk with those two women. It was a really cool experience, uh, blending of a lot of the different elements that I am really passionate about. So thanks to both of you. And so thanks to all of you uh, that have stuck around with me for a hundred episodes. Uh, if you if this is the first episode you've ever listened to, uh, welcome. Uh, or if you've been around for all 100, uh, welcome as well. You know, thank you for listening. I appreciate you know your um, you know your your loyalty, or if you shared it with somebody, or just you know tuning in. If you've given feedback, that's been great. I would love some feedback from this show, especially. Um, but I'm just really grateful for, uh, you know, what we've been able to cultivate here. And I look forward to more episodes. So the thing that I was planning to do in terms of looking back and, and talking about the things that I've learned from developing a podcast about college students with uh, mental health issues that are in recovery, I'm still going to do that. I'm just going to do it uh, as my last episode of this semester. So that will be, I believe, in three, four weeks from now. I have about three or four left. Uh, so look for that then, because I figured I would probably be doing a lot of that then as well, because as many of you know, the um, the format of the podcast will be changing. So typically I take a break in the summer and then come back in the fall and do 15 episodes on a weekly basis. But I am not gonna be returning to, to, to that kind of schedule come this fall. Uh, the good thing is I will probably be, you know, releasing episodes. It'll be less frequently. It will not be once a week. Uh, it'll be more on a, on a basis of as I come up with content. So it might be once a month. I don't know. It might be more than that. I don't, I'm leaving it purposely open because I don't want to make any promises and then not deliver. Uh, so, I, but I am, I do want to keep this podcast going, but I just think, you know, I've changed and the direction has changed and I love, what I love about the content and and the fact that I am able to interview people uh, is that it's there forever. You know, people five years from now could find these podcasts and still find them completely relevant to what it's like to be a college student, I think. Uh, I can't predict the future, but it's not like some podcasts where after a week, you know, the the info that has been delivered, the content is sort of stale because, you know, things are continually updating. I'm going to stay on top of the trends and things that are relevant to college students in recovery with mental health conditions. You can be sure of that. Um, but I think that the basics of what we talk about here, the, the importance of learning tools for recovery, you know, having them in your wellness toolbox, the importance of practicing good wellness, um, you know, the things that I value, mentorship, entrepreneurship, that's, I don't think I see that changing. And and the podcast will continue to focus on that. It just won't adhere to the same rigid structure that I've, you may have gotten used to and that I've, I've gotten in the habit of, but I just, you know, I'm looking to uh, change it up a bit and expand and, and do other things. And it is a, 
during the semester, it is a, a great, good deal of work to keep it on a regular basis. So I hope you can appreciate that. And I, uh, you know, I hope you continue to stay with me, subscribed, and we have many more years of episodes. You know, maybe we'll get to 200. You never know. Um, so with that, um, have a great week, everybody. And I will see you back here next week. Peace.